Good morning. Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 36. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he said to them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone could come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it? For a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went into the mountains to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving, Peter said to him, Master, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. When he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept this to themselves and told no one what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, starting a four-week resurrection series with you. Probably the most famous events in the Bible. We know the story well. We know the cast of characters. This is my 13th uh, Easter Sunday preaching. After my first few years, I spent a great deal of time worrying about finding something new and clever to say, finding a new slant. Maybe it's just not about that. Maybe it's about coming back to the familiar stories, the great truths that ground our faith. Vit and I and our family love to go to the North End in Boston. The first time we were in the North End, what do you think was the first thing we wanted to see? Of course, the old North Church. Paul Revere's ride, one if by land, two if by sea, three if by tea. <laughs> Sorry. We just couldn't wait to see the history. It's interesting, over the last several years now, we've been into that area of Boston a dozen times or more, and I haven't thought once about the old North Church in that whole time. I'm enjoying the restaurants, especially Pizzeria Regina, Mike's pastries and those lobster tails. And, oh, 
Sometimes we can be that way around the Christian truths. We know that these events are what our whole faith is about. But they become so familiar to us that we get really focused on other things. The fellowship, the spiritual food, our traditions. I think this time of year gives us an opportunity to reconnect with what is most important. To recapture our sense of the glory that John speaks of at the beginning of his gospel when he's about to write about Jesus and the events we're about to study. And he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about a familiar story, but we're going to start from a less than familiar starting point today. My hope is that in looking at it from the perspective of five different character groups will recapture the glory and maybe also, who knows, gain some fresh insights at the same time. Dee was reading Luke chapter 9, which is where we're going to start our journey, the transitional chapter of Luke's gospel. It's very important. Not long after the passage that Deepak read, you see this verse, this simple little verse, and I'd like you to say it with me. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven... Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The Greek word for resolutely means fixed his face toward. He fixed his face towards Jerusalem. Somewhere in that, I hear Jesus' own words about those who would follow him. No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks away is fit for my kingdom. When you're plowing with animals, you set your eye on a sight And never take your eye off that end point that you're walking towards. That's how you keep your straight line. If you look down, look around, you're all over the place. Jesus is using that metaphor to say you fix your face on that point, grab a hold of the plow, and you never look back. This is Jesus doing that. So everything that's happened up until this point in Luke 9 sets the stage for this moment. And everything that follows proceeds from this intentional event where Jesus, knowing that the time has come for God's purposes to move forward and to come to fruition, he sets his sights on Jerusalem. What I want to do is take you through the events that have happened up until this point so you understand how important Luke 9 is because it's pivotal. There are things that happen here that are big. At this point, the tension begins to build because the plot is thickening. But up until this point, here's what's taken place. Luke covers the birth of Jesus in great detail, and then he introduces John the Baptist, who's the forerunner. Everything that Luke is telling, the events he's chosen to put together in Jesus' life, The teaching, the miracles, they're all designed to help us understand who Jesus is. The reason why he talks about John the Baptist is because the prophecies of the Old Testament said that before the Messiah come, there would be a forerunner. And this was John the Baptist. He was that forerunner. So he sets the stage for people to understand that this isn't just a story about a man. This is a story about the man, the man that God sent. And he wasn't just a man at all. So he talks about John the Baptist. Then in Luke chapter 3, we have really the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Baptized by John the Baptist, a voice comes out of heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. 
Then Luke steps back from that narrative and goes all the way back through Jesus' lineage, not just to David, but all the way back to Adam. It's pretty interesting. You should read it. Another thing to say, I'm putting pieces together for you, and we're going to reach this tremendous moment where the whole thing comes together about who he is, but I'm building that case. Chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus. Then we see him going to Nazareth, his hometown. And in the synagogue, he reads a messianic passage about the coming of the year Jubilee and pronounces to his own hometown, that has been fulfilled today in their midst. Everyone listening understood what he was saying. The kingdom they've been waiting for in the back town of Nazareth, in their little synagogue, from a kid who grew up as the son of a carpenter, this is it. It's happened right now. They reject that. But it's important that we know that Jesus said that. A case is being built. From that point on, we see evidence of the coming of the kingdom. Besides his mastery over spiritual knowledge, Jesus showed mastery over the physical ailments of our lives. He showed mastery over the spiritual world by casting out demons, taking authority over them. This repeats itself and builds throughout several chapters, recurring themes. Then we come to chapter 8, and now we get some insight into what's going on in the minds of the disciples at this stage. You know the story of the calming of the sea. Jesus is exhausted. He gets in the boat, and they head across the sea to get away from the crowds because the crowds are so big at this point in his ministry. He's so exhausted, he falls fast asleep. A great storm comes up. They're afraid they're going to tip over and sink. Jesus is still asleep. So they wake him up, and they say, Master, don't you care that we perish? Jesus wakes up, turns to the wind and the waves like they're two unruly children. Peace! Peace! Be still. And instantly, the sea calms, and Jesus demonstrates mastery over now nature. In verse 25 of chapter 8, what the disciples say at that moment is really important to Luke's narrative because they look at him, and there's fear. Jesus actually looks at them and says, why are you so afraid? And often we think it's the fear that they were going to die, but now the danger has passed, and they're still looking in fear. Why is there fear and awe on their face? It's betrayed by the question they asked among themselves. Verse 25, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's the key question to Luke's gospel. Who is this man? He has authority over the things of God. He has authority over our physical ailments. He has authority over the spiritual world. Now we see that he has authority over nature itself and Then one final event that pushes this question to the next level as he comes into a town, one of the town leaders brings him to a home where a girl has just died. And Jesus actually brings this girl back to life. And now we see that this Jesus has authority over death itself. This is the buildup that has taken place as we come into this pivotal, this watershed chapter. What we see taking place in in Luke chapter 9 are several very important things. The first thing is that Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to minister. He empowers them and sends them out to minister in his name. Then they come back. There's a big crowd, and we have the feeding of the 5,000. That's pretty fantastic. Then there is the event that Deepak read for us, and let's turn there again, Luke chapter 9, and we're at verse 18. So the disciples have been out among the people. 
They've been performing miracles in Jesus' name. So it is logical then that Jesus would say to them at this point, because they've talked to a lot of people, what are people saying about me? Let's pick it up again. Verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? This is their reply. Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that you're one of the prophets long ago that has come back to life. Uh, It's interesting that that's their observation. What he's doing is working them up to the question that really matters. The thing he's been trying to make a case for for the last two years, almost three years, while they have been following him and watching him. The real question he wants to ask is the same thing they asked in the ship. Who is this man? Verse 20, what about you? Who do you say I am? Here he is. This is everything Luke's been building up for. Have they been watching? (laughs) Do they get it? And Peter said this, you are the Christ of God. In Matthew, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything builds to this moment. Do you see that? He has demonstrated his authority over every part of God's creation, including death itself. They have seen the forerunner. They understand the prophecies. Have they gotten it? And Peter gloriously gets it right. Jesus in Matthew goes on and says to him, you're blessed because you're the one that saw this. And I'm going to give you a nickname. You're going to be called Petros. That means a stone that you can hold in your hand, one that you can throw. Because he was the first to profess Christ. But then Jesus says this, on this Petros, that's the feminine, and that means foundation, bedrock. That's not Peter. That's the declaration of who Jesus is that Peter made. It's on this great truth that I am the Christ, and I'm going to build my church. That's how important this moment is. They've gotten it. So first in chapter 9, we see this declaration of who Jesus is. But then we see the full revelation of it in verse 28, what we call the transfiguration. Do you understand why all of this had to happen and why Peter and the disciples needed to make this confession about Jesus before Jesus was willing to reveal his full glory, to reveal his divinity? Do you understand that? So again, another big thing in chapter 9. The veiled deity in humanity is lifted for a brief moment, and those who were closest to him really did behold his glory. All that in chapter 9. And it's out of that context, all of that buildup, we come, and I won't spend time in the intervening verses, but we come to verse 51, and we see this truth. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a number of important things you need to see here. One, it was the time to go forward, right? As the time was coming, everything that Jesus had done to reveal who he was so that now he could move forward and accomplish what he came to accomplish. And so, having built that case, having received the confession, having revealed his glory, now he sets his face on Jerusalem, resolutely, never turning back, never looking away. He sets his face on Jerusalem. 
Let's just quickly, because this is what we're going to do each week, let's look at this moment from five different perspectives. Let's look at this moment from the perspective of Jesus' disciples. And today we're going to break it down by the view that they have, the conclusion they're making, and the expectation that it builds about what's ahead for them. So the view of the disciples comes from three years with Jesus, right? That's why they were able to come to this point and say, there's no doubt we've been living with you, eating with you, sleeping with you. We've seen it all. We know who you are. So they were able to make this profession of Jesus from a viewpoint of having spent three years with him intimately. Now all the pieces have come together. So they, they've got it right. Jesus is the Christ. But what are they expecting? What they're expecting is that because the Christ has come, that the kingdom is coming. It is imminent. It's interesting that Jesus immediately begins to talk about, from that point on, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be put to death, but then he was going to rise again from the dead. Peter's response to that part of what Jesus said was to get it wrong. He had just gotten it right, you're the Christ. And then Jesus said, okay, but now because you know that, I want to tell you why I really came. I came to die Peter just couldn't deal with that. He says, no, it's not what we're going there to do. We're going there to set up the kingdom. He tries to rebuke Jesus. And so Jesus as quickly as calling him the first living stone of the church, turns around and calls him Satan. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. For now what you're saying isn't from God, but it's from the devil. The first thing he said was from God. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to you, and now, now you're speaking for the devil. That's the fickleness of the human heart. And before you get down on Peter, I'll bet you you've done that in some way or another, right? So Jesus is teaching about the coming of, of his death. What they're seeing is the kingdom. Let me offer evidence to that in Luke chapter 9. But back up with me to verse 46 from 51. What happens just before this momentous event where Jesus says we're going to Jerusalem? Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. So this is the beginning of an argument that will continue among the disciples right until the moment Jesus is arrested. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. They're going to Jerusalem to anoint him as king, and they're vying for position in the royal realm. That's where they are at this moment. Let's just quickly go through the other ones. What about Jesus' opponents? In this stage in Luke, we do see the Pharisees and the teachers who are looking for a way to arrest him. We'll learn more about them as the time goes on. But their view is through centuries of religious tradition. Not just the Old Testament scriptures, but their own teaching, their own laws that they've set up. And those laws have so clouded their ability to see just the purity of scripture that when Jesus comes doing what scripture said he would do, they don't even see it because they've got scriptures so locked up inside all of their traditions and points of view. So they're missing it completely. Their conclusion is Jesus is a problem. Their expectation is if we can get this guy to Jerusalem, we're going to arrest him and we're going to eliminate this problem. There is a third person who we only hear in Luke 9, the father we heard him early in chapter 3 when he, at the baptism, professes his delight for the Son. 
And then in the transfiguration, we hear the voice of the Father once again saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father, his view is the best of all because he, standing apart from even time itself, is viewing this moment from the perspective of eternity past all the way to eternity future. He sees it perfectly in his plans. And when he speaks, what does he reveal about his conclusion? He's really happy. He's pleased. He's pleased with his son. He's pleased with where his plans are at this moment. This is my son in whom I am very well pleased. Listen to him. The writer of Isaiah says, it pleased the father to bruise the son. Think about that. In fact, let's say this together. There's a scripture verse I I think I've got ready to cue from Isaiah 53. This is the prophet looking forward hundreds of years about Jesus. Say it with me. He was pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and it pleased the father to bruise him. So, even though his son is about to go and face the events that in retrospect we see clearly, the father is joyous over his son, pleased to do what he's about to do because it is the key to our finding redemption. That's an incredible thought. His expectation is the eternal plan fulfilled. Then there's Jesus himself. We've already talked about his view. He has intentionally focused his view on one singular point, He's not looking left, he's not looking right, he's not looking behind. He's looking at Jerusalem. What's his conclusion? The time is at hand. All is in place. I'm going to fulfill what the Father called me to do. What are his expectations? Death and the tomb and then victory. The fifth perspective is ours. We're characters in this story because it's still being played out in our lives. What's our view? Well, we have the benefit of hindsight from the author. We know the events that have transpired. More than that, we know about what the church has done and been for the last 2,000 years with all of the, the things that evil men have done in the name of the church and then all the things that the pure church throughout all of that has done in the name of Jesus. And we are recipients, and we know that those of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ are part of that great church that Jesus said he would build at this moment in time. We're part of that. What do we conclude as we look back on this? And this is a really important thing for you to understand because it's something that many people want to take away from the gospel story. Our conclusion is this. The cross was the plan. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just that Jesus was this great teacher and came to show people how to love each other and love God, and they hated him so much they killed him. Oops, and so God made lemonade, (laughs) turned it into good. No, the cross was always the plan. You see, you can't mistake that when you follow the, the story. Everything built to this moment And now that we know who he is, what he came to do, take center stage. The cross was always the plan. And because we know what happened, what's our expectation? Savior, sacrifice, and our salvation. That's the journey that we are going to take together again. 
We're going to look each week at different moments in the journey from those five perspectives. And my hope for some of you is that you will see the glory of Christ maybe for the very first time and your faith in him will come to life. And my hope for those of you that have been on a journey with him for years is that that majesty, that faith will be rekindled. Let's pray together. Why don't you just bow in a moment of silent prayer and just say, Father, rekindle my amazement. Help me once again to see the glory of Christ as we take this familiar journey to the cross and to the empty tomb.